the business of cybersecurity. Here are your co-hosts and cybersecurity experts, Brian Horning, Reginald Andre, and Randy Bryan. Yeah, welcome, welcome. Another week, another week of cyber attacks and ransomware. How was everybody's Memorial Day weekend? It was good. Lots of fun. Sounds like the live audience is most excited that Andre's here. Seems like that's right. why they start clapping when they mention mm-hmm. We're happy because the Miami Heat won and the Florida Panthers. So we got a whole thing going on. What do they call that? Uh, a three-peat? No, they don't call it a three-peat. Championship town, uh, Florida. It's moving from Tampa over to Florida or over to Miami. Mm-hmm. That's right. All right, guys. So we were talking in the green room about cyber attacks. There's no shortage of them in the news. And, you know, it is just past Memorial Day weekend, but we haven't heard about most of the cyber attacks that happened this past weekend, which I'm sure there's a lot of them. Um, and there's a lot of stuff to talk about today because they're ratcheting up a, uh, cybersecurity and cyber attacks at a, on a lot of different levels. Um, not only are we seeing an increase, which we're going to talk about today, in uh, businesses being hacked, but we're seeing uh, a lot of things happen uh, from a geopolitical standpoint with governments uh, hacking, uh, which typically, in my opinion, is going to lead to an increase in, in private industry attacks when you have governments openly uh, cyber attacking one another. So we're going to talk about that because something big, uh, what I would term big, uh, did happen between China and the U.S. And we'll, and we'll get to that towards the end of the show. But we're starting to see a lot of things fall out as a result of ransomware attacks. And the first thing we're going to talk about is one main financial and uh, they were fine. Somebody is finally starting to uh, put teeth into what's happening out there around cyber attacks. And this lender, One Main Financial, uh, I didn't even think they were in business anymore. I thought they got uh, bought, but that's a different story for a different day. Uh, fine $4.25 million for their cybersecurity lapses. And before we get into what happened over at One Main, Randy, what's our fee for the show? <laughs> so our fee for the show, our show is free, um, but it's not free as in worthless. It's free as in a free beer. Um, so the uh, the the fee that we ask from you got for you from everybody that's watching is just that you like the show wherever you're watching it. Um, that you share it out with uh, your timeline. Once again, wherever you're watching it, um, comment on us on it and just let people know about it, man. Yeah. Thank you, Randy. That's our, that's our fee and keep helping us, uh, keep helping us grow the show. Karen, I assume uh, somebody Andre knows is uh, also a huge heat fan. So (laughs) threw that up there. Uh, Yeah. Good job. Uh, they did a great job last night. I can tell you that. <laughs> so here we go. One main financial group, which specializes in issuing loans to people with non-prime credit histories, will pay a $4.25 million penalty in New York State 
for cybersecurity lapses found during a government investigation. So it wasn't even a cyber attack, or at least from what we can see. Um, uh, New York DFS has some of the most stringent cybersecurity and data protection laws in the country. Uh, so if you do business in New York or you have clients in New York, you actually fall under uh, New York State DFS. And you need to pay attention to this pretty good because it's more stringent than any other state in the country when it comes to this. And as one main financial found out, this company failed to effectively manage third-party service provider risk, which is something we're seeing a lot in cyber insurance application. We'll talk about what that is here in a second. Uh, they failed to manage access privileges, and they failed to maintain a formal application security development methodology, which significantly increased the company's vulnerability to cybersecurity events. All right, guys, so let's just jump jump into it. We got enough here to talk about what what they've been basically accused of by the Department of Financial Services in New York in an announcement that they released on Thursday. So they failed to effectively manage third-party service provider risk. That's, we're seeing that come up a lot, right? So let's jump into that. What do, what do businesses need to do here? Obviously, third-party risk. And now we're seeing this a lot in, in like, if you have CMMC uh, compliance, if you have cyber insurance uh, in your business, you're starting to see language like this. Right that says you're gonna manage third-party risk. So let's just talk about what is third-party risk? I guess the biggest story that we know of that I think we talked about a podcast or two ago was the target breach, right? That you know, a, a contractor with Johnson Controls was able to basically get target, their whole entire corporation hacked as a result of the access that they had. That is a third party in this situation. Uh, Johnson Controls, who had access to Target's network to do what they do. So third party is somebody who works with or has access to, you know, what you would consider a critical asset or critical data. Um, that's kind of, you know, my definition of, of third party. It's somebody outside your organization who has access to some kind of critical asset or some kind of critical data that you need to manage. And there's a lot of different ways you can manage it. We're going to talk about that. So uh, third-party risk, guys. How do you guys oh, advise your clients on this? Or what, are things? what was that? Oh, I said I have tons of stuff to say, and I'm sure Andre does too. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it, it's not something that a lot of businesses have heard a lot about. You're starting to hear a lot about it, but it is something that we're going to hear more and more. Um, so let's talk about it. Like, what do you... What do you guys advise your clients around, you know, looking at their third parties, their vendors, their partners? Right. So um, and, are, and how they can. Well, I guess before we go into solutions, let's talk about, you know, I use the target example. But what are some other ways third parties can cause problems for your business and why you would want to consider? Well, because you're giving them access to your information. Right. And. You give it, whether it's company data, whether it's customer data, trade secrets. I mean, they have access to data and that's where the issue can be, can be caused um, 
because if if they get hacked, then your data that you gave them got hacked. I mm-hmm. think that's the that's the gist here. Um, managing your third party service provider risk. Um, the gist is because you're putting some of your stuff into their hands. Right. To answer your question directly. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's that's it in a nutshell. So. You know, your they have data that you shared with them. You know, you emailed it to them. You gave them access to Teams. You gave them access to OneDrive. You gave them access to Google Drive. Somehow, some way, they now have access to it. You've given it to them. Um, and you know, there's some things you want to make sure that you're doing around this. Um, but what are some things that, like, I know what we're doing here at our company, um, and early in the early stages of seeing this. So like, what are some things businesses can do to manage this risk? Cause I mean, I, I have, I have the opinion that for really small businesses, managing third party risk is not something that's going to be cheap. It's not something that's going to be easily achieved. So what is a really small business that doesn't really have the budget around this? What, what do they do? Right. So that's, that's one of the things you want to consider and look at. But for companies that might, you know, we get and give questionnaires on Excel spreadsheets or through some kind of portal on the web um, that ask similar questions that you see on like a cyber insurance application. So you get to understand the level of risk of a particular, uh, uh, particular vendor or partner that you're working with. So, um, you know, there's one big thing that companies can do, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but I just want to hear from you guys. Like, what are you guys seeing and what are you guys recommending about how to manage this risk for your, your businesses? I mean, so first off, you need to approach everything. Your whole information security plan needs to come from a zero trust standpoint. And if you start there, then you can evaluate everything from top to bottom and ask yourself, obviously this needs to be done by a professional, but ask yourself, is this in best keeping practices with, with zero trust? Zero trust means, and you know, to put it kind of short, shortly and succinctly, zero trust means people or machines only get access to the things that they literally only need access to. So, for example, you're a small business, you have a CPA. Does your CPA need full access to all of your bank accounts? No. They your CPA may not even need access to your bank accounts at all. Maybe you have a bookkeeper. Does your bookkeeper need, need full access to all your bank accounts? No. Your bookkeeper needs read-only access so they can enter in tra- so they can pull in transactions to QuickBooks. So you want to limit it this to that. If you're dealing with a third party, let's say like a contractor, you don't just take your entire data folder on SharePoint and then just add your contractor to that. You need to make the way the way I look at it is you need to have like an I imagine in my head, an iron door that nobody can get through and a little bitty slot that you only pass through like on a, like on a prison that you only pass through what they need. And then they pass back from that through that same through that same way. And I know that's speaking very, very figuratively. But bottom line is everything that you give out access, you you have to limit it. That's the first thing to consider is you have to limit it to just what is actually needed. And that's it. And I'll stop on that because I know Andre wants to add some stuff. 
Yeah, just um, piggybacking on that CPA example. So if your CPA needs to access your internal financial software program application or whatever, you know, when you are giving them access to your network, are you putting in things in place to make sure that a system can't access your, excuse me, a computer can't access your system unless it has certain updates, unless it's um, running a certain uh, Microsoft Windows. Um, if it's an older version of Windows, it's not allowed to come onto the network. Are the, the way that they're logging in with their username and password, um, is it where everybody across that company is sharing that login? So whenever they let go of an employee, they're just reusing that password or is it individual? So there's a lot of different things that you have to work with these third parties because you're giving them access um, a lot of times you can do a lot of things right within your organization, but it's the other guy, uh, that third party, that now is not doing best practices, and then that's how um, your system can get compromised. Yeah, and, you know, it, one thing I'll say with Randy, I do agree with him on the zero trust model, but <clears throat> there's a lot of reasons why that might, that might be hard to adopt for a lot of organizations. Um, it, it's not a one size fits all. It might not be right for you, uh, but it also, you know, absent of you adopting a model like what Randy suggests, um, there's some things you can do to prevent, you know, liability on your small business. And one of those is simply requiring in your contracts that your vendors maintain a certain level of cybersecurity. Um, in a lot of cases, that will cover you around this type of language. And that's what we're making sure that our clients are aware of and that they're adding to their agreements that you know somebody who is supplying them with services or goods that help them produce their product they need to have language in their contracts now. And this is, this is new. Not a, a lot of companies have needed to do this. And not a lot of uh, companies are looking at their contracts to be rewritten to include language around liability and security. So we advise our clients to make sure that they add something in there that basically says, you're going to be taking care of your cybersecurity. And that's our expectation. In a similar way that you're seeing it with the government putting it into their contracts in, in around CMMC. They're forcing private businesses to do cybersecurity if they want to do business with the government. Well, clients, you know, most of our clients today, we're advising them the same thing. You need to make sure that, you know, they're doing the minimum basic cybersecurity stuff so it doesn't fall on you if they have a breach. Um, and, you know, whether the company below you that you're that you're working with is actually doing those things, it's really not your problem anymore once you have something like that in your contract because you're basically making them aware. Now, yeah, you're, you, are you going to have to do audits? Are you going to have to check them? You might, depending on how much money you have and the size of your contract. But for most small businesses, if they're not making, you know, a million dollars on a contract, you're not going to you're not going to go and find out if that company's really doing what they're saying. So I don't know if you guys have different thoughts on that, but that's kind of where my head's at around this stuff because I'm seeing it a lot more and more in different contracts and in different places. And, you know, we've had clients come to us and go, what do we, what do we do here? And it's like, okay, well you can 
spend a lot of money, manage, help, you know, having somebody manage your third party risk, or you can start by putting some language in your contracts or modifying your agreements. So they say something. So the liability kind of stops at your front door and doesn't creep into, into your house. Thoughts, Randy? Yeah, I do. <clears throat> because I don't know, like I would definitely agree with you on that. Um, that having, having cybersecurity insurance on the other end of all these agreements is really, really good because when something happens, there's coverage there to make sure um, you're covered. I'm, I am wondering though, cause that, 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 I guess that is part of managing the risk. It is. Um, but that's one of the big call outs here from, from the, uh, from the D DFS here is that they weren't managing third party, um, right. service provider risk. Um, I also wonder though, does that also mean were they not properly vetting um, third-party providers. Right. Or so first off, number one, everything I said about the contract stuff had to do with small businesses. One, okay. one main financial is not a small business by any stretch of the imagination. The, the article does go on in the state, which we haven't gotten to yet, that they failed to ap appropriately adjust several vendors' risk scores even after the occurrence of multiple cybersecurity events. So their vendors were having issues with cybersecurity and this company wasn't doing a good job at managing it. So that, and that's what I'm saying. Like you're going to have to pay somebody a full-time salary role to manage this risk. If you're a fairly large company, like that's going to be their job is to manage third-party vendor risk around cybersecurity and making sure that you're doing things like updating risk scores when certain people have certain events, right? So that's, you know, one main financials is, is, is huge. They have 1.09 billion revenue in the first quarter of 2023. So they made a bill over a billion dollars in three months in 2023, and they're not doing basic stuff. Right. I guess, I guess the discussion for me here is, is like, a business like this of this size should 100% have a team of people who are dedicated to third-party vendor risk with that kind of cash coming in. Yeah, that, that's uh, 14,000 employees that they got. So someone is sleeping on the job. Yeah. And then it goes on to say they failed to manage access privileges, which is like, I don't know which is worse, worse ignoring third-party risk or not managing the access that people have. Um, any thoughts on that there, guys? Um, I mean, it's pretty straightforward that, you know, they're, they're giving people access to folder and it, look, not like I'm saying, like most businesses that I encounter aren't in the same boat, but you know, people having access to shares that they don't normally, you know, shouldn't have access to, or maybe they have admin rights on their computer to install software when they probably shouldn't, things like that. And, uh, you know, that's what one main financial failed to do. And as a result, they got hit with this four point two five million dollar uh, penalty. Thoughts, Randy? Yeah. So so basically like cybersecurity 101 um, is identifying 
identifying your data, identifying your devices, identifying your people, and then built into all of these financial laws is basically a cycle. It's a cycle of, of audit, change, audit, change, where you, you basically need on a regular basis, you need to make sure people have the right access. All the users that left are taken out of the system. You know, people, people, um, those are the two main things right there. And, and then it's, it's just a process. It needs to be an ongoing process. And whether you're talking about um, securities level um, regulations, whether you're talking about regulations for CPAs, which by the way, go into effect in less than two weeks, um, the final leg of all those, um, bottom line is you've got to stay aware of, 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 of all the stuff that you just mentioned and on a regular basis, you need to be looking into it and making sure you're still up to date and you make adjustments as necessary. Yeah. So that's a huge deal. It's like, that's like, to me, that's almost, I know you said that maybe the first one's worse. I almost think this is worse because they're, they're like skipping cybersecurity 101, you know? So they're both pretty bad, but. It, yeah, I agree. I agree with you. It, um, you know, I guess the biggest challenge that I see with businesses out there around this is especially ones that are established and they've kind of been doing things a certain way for a long period of time and then you want to make an adjustment. That's where it, you it's really hard to get user adoption around this when you're saying like, hey, we have to change file structures. It, it takes effort. It takes people's time. It takes resources away from probably what the company does to make money right to secure this stuff and it seems tedious and it's annoying but it really may save your ass when you have to deal with a cyber attack one day you're going to be going man i'm glad we did that and you know sally from accounting didn't have access to every single file that the company ever created so <clears throat> manage access privileges very important that's why they got fined and then this one's a little bit um involved i would say i won't spend a ton of time here because uh, i think this is probably splitting hairs and, and and really kicking a dead horse at this point um because the first two were pretty bad and i think most if, if we were to look at most companies that develop software um this is going to hold true and that's to maintain a formal application security development methodology um Basically, yeah. meaning that they were creating software that wasn't secure, which, you know, increased their um, their threat surface, uh, so to speak. Yep. Um, so that's it's that's really it. what I had mentioned. But then also your your basically your changes, very simply put, your change to all of your software applications needs. They all need to be verified um, or else you fall. And that's what happened with. Um, the big, big, uh, oh my gosh, I can't remember the name. The big hack of the RMM, the SolarWinds hack, where they were able to insert a little bit of code. I mean, I think it's like this long. And they were able to insert that code and they weren't paying attention. And it got folded into everything. It got published and rolled out. Next thing you know, they're, they're in the back door of a lot of very uh, high-tech, high-risk places. So, Yeah, the North goes to... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say kudos to DFS for doing this investigation and, and publicizing this because 
Just yeah. imagine if we had these type of reports coming out every week, every month, how, how much would that change this shift in us talking less about what's happening in the world? And thankfully, um, one main financial, this wasn't like a situation where they got a ransomware or some type of compromise. This was just an internal investigation that found this. So think this is like a blessing for them that this is the worst thing that happened. Yeah, they're getting off easy. It's like a $4 million wake up call. Right. And about half percent of gross rev. Yeah. So, you know, they'll happily pay that and hopefully improve their cybersecurity. Moving right along, the Northeast, especially in the healthcare world, has been just getting pummeled by cyber criminals uh, in the last few months. And we have another uh, group up there in New England of the Managed Care of North America, or NCNA Dental, has published a data breach notification on its website informing almost 9 million patients that their personal data have been compromised. Uh, MCNA Dental is one of the largest government-sponsored dental care and oral health insurance providers in, a, in the U.S. The uh, information that was stolen contained the full names, address, date of birth, phone number, email, social security number, driver's license number, government-issued ID, health insurance, care for teeth or braces, and uh, bills and insurance claims. So uh, Lockbit is the group behind this. They're the ones who claimed the cyber attack on MCNA on March 7th of 2023 when the group published the first data samples stolen from the healthcare provider on its dark web leak site. Uh, on April 7th, Lockbit followed that up and released all the data that it had on its website, making it available for download by anyone. So here we go, guys. Um, you know, I just want to point out before we open the discussion on this that it was just reported that the IRS has received more false uh, income tax returns this year already than they ever have in the history of the IRS. Um, and we're, we're just shortly past our, the tax filing deadline. Um, and, you know, people are still in that extension period um, where things can still happen. Um, and I believe that it's a direct result of all the information that is available out there on the dark web. It's 100%, no doubt in my mind, that most of these income tax filings that are being filed by cyber criminals are happening because of all this information like this that's being dumped out on the dark web. And people be like, you know, nobody seems to care that all this data is being put out there. Um, but in a very short period of time, I think people are going to care. It, yeah. Yeah. This is, this is this really, is really bad. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No problem. No, I was just going to say this is also really bad. And, you know, how many times do we hear from dentists that say, you know, what, what do they want from me? Like, you know, who cares about the information that we store? Yeah. Um, and they're they're sorry to hit, hit everybody with a wide swath here, but they're notorious for that, oh, um, for, for, for turning down um, cybersecurity services. But here's nine million records. All the bad actors need is their own little version of ChatGPT, which I know of three really good open source ones already. 
um, that are out there. They take that, they take that dark web da data, they have it craft some really amazing phishing emails using some of this information. This is really, really bad. And we, we know as insiders, quote unquote, you know, in the cybersecurity industry, we know that like Microsoft, Google Workspaces, all those are like freaking out right now because of what we're at the crust, the, what is it? The crust, not the crust, the crest of like, we're at the very beginning of this explosion of phishing emails. And this, I look at this, I just can't stop shaking my head at the information that they got and how- You're gonna have targeted phishing attacks against these people, you know, from N MCNA and their affiliates, however they can they, they can trick you. That's that's kind of one layer, right? And then you have the layer that I talked about with the identity fraud, tax right. returns, credit applications. So like people are gonna start caring about what happens to their data. I mean, they kind of already do in Europe at a, at a very high level. Um, and I'm just surprised that it's still going on in this country at the rate that it's going on and, and people just kind of throw their hands up in the air, like there's nothing that can be done. And that's not, not necessarily the case. So anything else you guys want to add to that? Good luck to, good luck to them because they're going to have a lot of cleanup to do ahead of them and, uh, have to pay for a lot of people's, uh, life lock. And they get Medicare and um, Medicare. Oh, that too. Yeah, you didn't even mention. That's a great point. Um, the fact that this company bills healthcare. What, what impact yeah. does that have, Andre? Yeah. Well, for me, I, I was going to actually twist it where to say where the, the federal government needs to, um, in addition to penalizing them, this would be another great example to say, hey, this is our, in a sense, our client's information, the, the taxpayer's we're going to ban you from billing us in the future because you couldn't protect your data. That's how yeah, that's what happens. I mean, you go, you get, you get a HIPAA violation and if you end up on the HIPAA blacklist, you're never able to bill insurance ever again. That'll effectively put you out of business. Yeah. Um, you know, and you're going, you're going cash only. Good luck. So yeah, we, we also, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. We've talked to quite a few recently. We had one, uh, orthodontist office who you know didn't move forward with us because they were like oh you're too expensive and it's like okay so go ahead randy um we mentioned it before on our podcast but i would highly encourage all individuals i know we're uh mostly targeting business owners and executives with our podcast but i would anybody that hears this to go and lock your credit accounts oh, yeah. um, it's not that hard to do you can google it um do it for um you, your spouse, your kids, um, just get it done. You can set up a pin. Um, you'll, if you try to get a, like a loan or something, it'll, it'll, it'll be like kicked back. Right. Right. Um, all you got to do is go enter the pin in, they can approve the loan. And then you basically, then you turn it back on. So you can unlock it for a little bit when you need it and then turn it back on. And that way, cause they can't do as easily some of that fraud that we were mentioning a few minutes ago. Right. <clears throat> yeah, I have my, my credit file locked. Your credit file is unlocked by default. And, you know, you got to go in and lock it, unfortunately. So just do it. It's simple. And, you know, for the 10 minutes a year that you need it unlocked because you're actually applying for credit, you might, you know, keeping it unlocked is just silly these days because it's just, you know, letting somebody bang at the front door until they get in. All right, guys. So, Blackbite, 
cousin of Black Bastard, I guess, huh? Black Bike Group has claimed uh, responsibility for ransomware attack on the city of Augusta, Georgia. Uh, I believe this happened last week. They posted uh, 10 gigs of sample data for free and claim they have a lot more data available. So here we have another U.S. city uh, dealing with a ransomware attack uh, on the heels of, you know, I think of Oakland. I think of, um, yeah, I can't even remember. I just know Oakland. I just know there was, whoa, Massachusetts. I knew there was one recently. And then Suffolk County is another one. Um, I think we're going to talk about them if we have time. But they're still dealing with problems. So no end in sight here, guys, for the cities of the United States who just seem to not, are no match for ransomware actors. Yep, and they want the, the city to pay $400,000 to delete the data, or they're willing to sell the data for $300,000. So I wonder if they're able to um, sell it to the city for three hundred, dollars and they, they make, you know, they save 100000 in the process. <laughs> no, but that's going to be double extortion, right? Because they're going to sell it. They're going to, if the city pays, but then in the back end, they're still going to sell it. They're criminals. Randy, you good? I'm just shaking my head, man. This is a real mess. I'm reading through some of the stuff that was, um, that was leaked. Um, and it includes a ton of PII, personally identifiable information. Um, which once again, targeting, targeted phishing attacks using chat GPT. Um, that's coming, man, soon. They're going to be so good. They're not going to say kindly send us $500 or whatever. You know what I mean? They're going to use words that are, you know, like if you're in Georgia, Augusta, Georgia, they're going to use Georgia language. Like, Hey y'all, you know, send us some money or whatever. You know what I mean? And anyway, it's not good. No, it's not. And then we have uh, Silver County, as I mentioned, New York. They're still dealing with ransomware eight months after an attack. And I think, number one, the reason it's caught my eyes is because we constantly try to educate business people out there. And it's no different if you're a city, a college, a K-12 school, a private business. It takes a while to get through this stuff. And it takes a while to deal with all the repercussions. And here we go, eight months after their attack, and they're still like having trouble to the point of like their residents are saying like, okay, enough with the emergency declarations because these emergency declarations basically give them carte blanche to write whatever checks they want and work with whoever they want and put out no big contracts. Um, it gets it gets really ugly and things you really don't want your government doing because it, it reeks of corruption and favoritism all over the place for one thing. But the, but the other thing is, is, you know, nine separate emergency declarations. So basically every month you're renewing this emergency declaration so you can try to get yourself right from this ransomware attack. And, you know, they're saying this time around, uh, that the ninth state of emergency was necessary because certain functions, including remote public document searches, remain offline and require a complete overhaul due to the fact that the former clerk IT administrator failed to update these systems in decades, which I think we talked about before um, when one of the one of the people came out and basically said this was a mess and they blamed this person 
for not doing this stuff. And I think Randy, you were the one that quipped, well, did he even have the budget to, to kind of do it? Um, you know, big mess here in, in, in out in Long Island in Suffolk County. Thoughts, guys? Oh, they have the budget because they, they found $5.4 million to investigate and restore the service and $12 million for new hardware and software. So the money has been there all along. The, the, the crazy thing, um, Brian, is post what Andre just mentioned, they did, um, they basically did a scan and found 600 instances of malware on their system still after all of that. So it just sounds like they're, it's mishandling upon mishandling. I don't know, man. I hate, hate pointing the fingers because we don't know what's going on over there, but gee whiz, y'all. All this while the uh, IT administrator is home with pay. <laughs> yeah, IT administrator is done. And, you know, that's the other thing, too, you got to look at. You know, as a CEO, as, as leaders of companies, like a guy like this, he's just out of a job. Yeah. Right? He's just out of, he's just out of a job. And most of these people are going to be out of a job. But th what this does damage-wise to the, to, to the, to the county um, you know, and it would be the same thing if it was a private company, right? The company will go down. The founders, you know, if they're still, you know, privately held or whatever, the founders are really going to feel the pain. Everyone else is, is going to lose the jo their job. Um, nobody's saying that this county clerk is going to be charged with anything. Um, so who's left holding the bag here? I mean, the taxpayers of the county are going to be the ones left holding the bag at the end of the day. So I said we were going to wrap this up in the, in the chat there, guys, but I lied. I want to do touch on this one last uh, article on China and kind of talk about the repercussions of this. Um, so it seems like we have uh, a little back and forth going on between the United States and China. Um, and, you know, we, we've heard about cyber attacks in the past, but I think this is going in a, a little bit of a different direction and people might want to start paying attention to this. Um, but essentially, uh, China attacked what's being termed as the U.S. homeland because they breached critical infrastructure in Guam. Uh, as a result, I think I saw something where we hit back and hacked the Chinese Navy, and now we're starting to see a little bit back and forth. Um what are your thoughts here, Randy? I'm going to defer to you because this is like one of your favorite kind of areas to delve into. Um, what are your thoughts here on on these governments doing these cyber attacks on critical infrastructure? Um, is this the canary in the coal mine or is this more like, uh, a, you know, this could go a lot of different directions in my brain. Like, this could be a precursor to an attack on the mainland. Uh, it could be a precursor to, uh, you know, these governments giving their people, their private citizens, the green light to go ahead and attack other private entities here in the U.S. and abroad. What are your thoughts on this? So if they, if they have uh, infiltrated Guam, um, they can pr basically get, information like if there's an attack let's say that china attacks taiwan um then they would know what we were doing if they had infiltration into our communications and things like that um is this the canary in the coal mine i think it's 
past the canary in the coal, in the coal mine. Like the canary in the coal mine is businesses getting attacked by nation states. And I would say a government is worse than that. We're talking like the canaries already died. I mean, I'm saying the canary in the sense that this was Guam and the, the next thing is going to be the mainland. Well, just that Guam is crucial if there is a war in Taiwan. Sure. Um, because the U.S. has vowed to support Taiwan and, you know. Well, it's a, it's, we're never going to make it. Plus, it's a major stop for us. We're never going to make it clear across right. without stopping. So right. it's, it's a strategic um, point if anything were to happen that we don't want to happen. Just we're, we're way past the day, I think, of of it's just, you know, just the president getting up and saying, hey, everybody, you need to be more cyber secure. Like, yeah, we need to do that. I think it's a national a national concern at the same time. Um, but also that the government has got to be more. I'm sure they are, but. This just says they've got to be more more proactive and both in defense. And I don't know about offense either. I don't want to really get into all that because I'm not really a international politics expert. But, you know, it just seems like our government needs to take a bigger role in uh, defense for sure. Andre, any thoughts here? Yeah, I, I, I again, likewise, we're, none of us are, are um politic experts in this case, but I think with the US, they do stuff, but they just don't publicize it. And then it looks bad for that other country and that other country doesn't want to look bad. So then it's kind of squashed there where if China is successful in doing something, they want to like, you know, do some type of rally and, oh, we got them, we got that. But my concern is, you know, one day there's going to be an oops moment. Um, something is going to be only for this one little country or territory, and then it accidentally, you know, spilled across. And now before you know it, um, something that was not intentional becomes a major um, uh, crisis between two powerful countries. Yeah, I think this is leading us to a path where more and more um, businesses and government are going to have to work together uh, to, to combat this. It's really the only way that I can see right now with what's in front of me, um, what, what we can do. So we'll see. I mean, this whole entire thing from funding to protecting schools to protecting, you know, K through 12 local governments, it's all going to be a public private partnership that works together to defeat this whole problem. And that's, that's the only way to go. So, all right, guys. Anything else? We're good, right? We're All right. good. All right. I see everybody next week in the next episode. Remember, share our show, and the links to everything we talked about today will be either in the description of the podcast or the video or on our website at securitysquawk.com. I'll see you guys later.